Life Foursquare Church welcomes you. We're located at 2350 Southeast Territorial Road, just off Highway 99E. We hope the following message will be a blessing to you. Welcome again, New Life Foursquare Church. Uh, This is a great time to be alive. We are finishing up this series on stewardship this weekend, which is exciting. And I want to point ahead to what's going to be coming up next week. And of course, Thanksgiving is Thursday, absolutely. And so the following weekend, Pastor Ron will get a chance to share on gratitude and the central place that has in the Christian life. And then following that weekend, of course, December 1st and uh, 2nd, which means it's December, which means it's Christmas, which means we're really excited about Jesus coming to earth as a baby to take away our sins and live the perfect life and die the sinless death and make us better. And so we're going to be spending four or five weeks in the month of December discussing how the story of Christ coming to earth fits into the big story of what God has been doing from the beginning of time to redeem his people and draw us home to him. And so very excited about that survey that we'll be doing. So it's an exciting time. I pray that you continue to participate here over the holiday season. Uh, This weekend now is part three in this little mini-series on stewarding your finances. So uh, a couple weeks ago, Ron shared on the central place of giving in the Christian life, and then last week I got a chance to share on a biblical model for making money. So that means this week we get to share about what you do with the money that you've made. So we're going to talk about how you spend money. So if this is your first weekend here at New Life, fantastic. Picked a good one. Before we get launched on this, it's helpful to remind ourselves of some of the ground rules whenever we talk about money to make sure that we're seeing this from the same perspective. The first is this, is that when a church, especially this church, talks about your cash, we do it not because we care about the cash per se, but because we recognize that there's a direct link between your wallet and your heart. Jesus said that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So it matters a great deal to us that your cash and your heart are in alignment with Christ. Do you guys remember what the first commandment is out of the 10? It says, uh, you shall have no other gods before me. See, financial stewardship is, it's bigger than just give 10% of your income or abide by integrity and honesty in your business. Financial stewardship is a key component of making sure that our money does not become our idol or our God. What I mean by money has the temptation to become idolatry is this. Idolatry is simply when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing. So money or sex or power or food or entertainment or pleasure are good things but they become idolatry in our lives when they become ultimate things, where everything about our lives is spent pursuing that one thing that's not God. Money has a special temptation for us to become this idolatrous item in our lives, and so one of the reasons that we talk about financial stewardship here is because we're very keenly aware of the special power of money to steal our heart's affection and our priorities away from the greatest treasure in the universe, which is Jesus Christ, okay? It's my heart's desire that not just 10% of our money, but 100% of our lives are dedicated, devoted to God, and that we become purposefully obedient to the leading of the Holy Spirit in order that God becomes the ultimate in our life and we get to steward the money that he has given us, enjoy it well, and share it generously for his glory and the good of others. 
Let's pray and then get into the text, all right? Heavenly Father, thank you that you have given us the power to get wealth and for providing for us daily everything that we have. God, we ask for the grace sufficient enough in order to see that you own everything and we are your stewards and that it's you, not money. That's the ultimate prize. God, help our budgets and our values come into alignment with you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray, amen. Uh, last week, we talked about how to make money. This week, we're going to talk about how to spend it. Uh, I use those pronouns loosely because um, spending your money, because last week we learned that everything that you have ultimately belongs to God, especially the power that you have to make money. Now, it's easy to say that the trees and the rocks and the natural resources, God made those so he owns them, but I go to work every day and I work really hard and the paycheck that comes my direction belongs to me, and this is what Deuteronomy chapter 8 has to say. The context is this. In Deuteronomy 8, Moses, as an old man, is sitting the people of Israel, who for 40 years have been wandering in the desert as a bunch of runaway slaves, and they had no money at all. So they didn't have to worry much about what it meant to steward things well. But here's what Moses knows. They're about to cross over the Jordan River, enter the promised land, and here's what they're going to find. They're going to live in houses they didn't build. They're going to take care of fields and vineyards that they did not plant. They will reap a harvest that they did not sow. They will immediately become very wealthy. And this is Moses' caution to the people of Israel. He says, beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God. It is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to you, to your fathers, as it is this day. I want to praise God that we live in a land of tremendous economic prosperity, so a sermon on how you spend your money is even necessary. But I want to caution us that as we move forward, even your capacity to generate income is a gift from God that you can be thankful for. So, let's move through this through a series of um, FAQs, if you will, some frequently asked questions to try to get us to a particular point. First question is this. When you talk about spending money, we've got to answer this. Is money fundamentally good or evil? Answer, money is good, love of money is evil. On the fact that money is good, uh, Wayne Grudem, the popular theologian, Wait, that's an oxymoron. Wayne Grudem, he's, he's a theologian, but no theologians are popular. Money is fundamentally good because it enables all mankind to be productive and enjoy the fruits of that productivity thousands of times more extensively than we could if no human being had money and we just had to barter with each other. So imagine a world for a moment in which money did not exist. In order to trade for the materials that you need to survive... Without money, you see how things get really complicated really quickly. Because what I can provide, thinking now, um, hmm, I can write you a bedtime story. Okay? Uh, that bedtime story has limited worth to the person who doesn't have kids. So all of a sudden, I'm stuck because the market does not value what I have to offer. And it makes it very difficult for me to live. But money is the one thing that everyone can agree on has value. So money is fundamentally good that God has given us. It's beneficial for human thriving. However, however, Scripture from front to back is full 
of strong, strong cautions about the special power of money to steal our heart's affection away from Christ and become the number one primary thing in our life, therefore making us idolaters. Let's look at several of these. Matthew 6, 24, you cannot serve God and money. So work the logic out. If you're serving money, who, by definition, can you not serve? Next one, Mark 10, 23. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. This story, this, this expression comes on the tail end of the story about the rich young ruler, the man who came to Jesus who wanted to know what he needed to do to get eternal life. And Jesus says, I want you to go sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, come follow me. And the man turned away. He was sad because he had great wealth. And Jesus says, it's more difficult for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And people look at that expression, going through the eye of the needle. Jesus, by the way, there, he wasn't making some joke, or he, was, he wasn't referring to something like there's a, there's a needle gate or anything where a camel had to like kneel down and crawl through. And he, was make, he was making, it's impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It doesn't happen. It's a hyperbole. Jesus is making a joke. It's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Luke 12, 15, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist of the abundance of your possessions. Uh, Finally, 1 Timothy 6, 9, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Case in point, the nightly news. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving, referencing back to the desire to be rich, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves through with many pangs. Strong words. So, these passages lead to the next question. Is it better then to be poor or rich? In order to answer that, we probably need to look at the two conflicting worldviews that exist within Christianity about how we approach our money. The two worldviews are these. You have a poverty theology and you have a prosperity theology. A poverty theology says that The fewer things that I have, the closer I am to God. In light of the fact that it's really difficult to get into the kingdom of God if you're rich and that the desire to be rich can throw people in temptation and a snare and pierce yourself through with many pangs, I want to rid myself of every worldly thing, every earthly thing, every money thing so that I can get closer to God. And you'll know you're in a poverty theology mindset if you you come to church and you're quick to notice the people who are richer than you the people who drive the nice cars and wear fancy clothes. And you become distrustful of them and judgmental. Because if they were really spiritual after all, they wouldn't be wearing all that nice stuff. They wouldn't be living in fancy houses. They wouldn't be driving nice cars. They would give all of that away. The spiritual offspring of poverty theology is legalism and judgmentalism. And it forgets that Jesus Christ 
came in the flesh. You see, we have this kind of spiritual, um, what we call a dichotomy or a split. On one side is everything that's spiritual, good. On one side is everything that's physical, bad. And so if I'm having a good time, it means that something's probably not right. Because if I was really spiritual, I'd be praying and fasting. So poverty theology has its downside. The flip side of that, however, is a prosperity theology. And a prosperity theology essentially says that money and things are the, are the fruit of a faithful life. And if you are poor, it simply means that you don't have enough faith. Because God becomes, and this is where the theology gets twisted, irrevocably bound to answer promises for, spirit, or for physical health and material prosperity. So if you're a child of the king, live like a king. Don't drive a Ford, drive a Mercedes. Drive two, drive three. The more you have, the more people will see that God is good. And so get more. Pray for more. Here's the key problem with this line of thinking. If we go to God in order for God to bless us with money, what are we really after? Money. And that makes us idolaters. Because we've pursued God for his gifts, not for God. So prosperity theology is built on the notion that somehow the things that we have are the evidence of God's good favor in our life, and we forget the fact that it is God himself who is the highest prize in all of the universe. Prosperity theology, excuse me, if poverty theology gives birth to legalism, then prosperity theology is going to give birth to consumerism. And consumerism forgets that everything rots, everything rusts, everything ends up in a landfill. This is why Jesus warned us that I want you to lay up treasure in heaven. Because as last time I checked, American currency had no value in heaven. We're dealing with two different currency systems, and we foolishly pursue the one at the expense of the other. I'm not saying don't pursue wealth. Some of you here are fantastic at making money. If I gave you $12,000 this week, by next year you'd have twenty-four. That's a gift. Use that gift. Exploit that gift wisely. Shrewdly steward your money. Jesus tells a ton of parables about him giving servants talents, money. And what does he want them to do with it? He wants them to grow that money. He wants them to invest wisely so that there's an increase in the return. He wants Christians to be shrewd stewards. But he wants to make sure that our heart does not get set on the increase of our riches because one day it will all be gone. And the only thing we have to show for is what we did to expand the kingdom of God with the money we did have. So being rich is not something to feel guilty about. But you're in a special pinch between the desires of the world dragging you down and the strong faith it takes to be able to say, I will thank God for what I have and use it to steward it wisely. 
So if there's, if there's poverty theology on one side says stuff is bad, and prosperity theology on the other side says stuff is the only thing, then is there a middle ground in the middle? I'm going to submit to you something called a theology of gratitude. A theology of gratitude is a central characteristic of the Christian life. Throughout all of the New Testament, we see gratitude popping up again and again. Colossians 4.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Ephesians 5.20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, 1 Thessalonians 1.2, Paul says we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly. Gratitude recognizes that everything we have is a gift, which puts God in the position of the giver, which glorifies him. And our response to this is threefold. Watch how this works. Our response to money is this. We gratefully enjoy it. We wisely steward it. We generously share it. Gratitude combats a poverty theology by being able to say, if God is a good dad who gives good gifts, if he's given a gift to me, my responsibility is to enjoy it. And it combats a prosperity theology by saying, it is God that is my ultimate treasure and prize in all of the universe, not money, and I will not use God to get more money because that makes me an idolater. Let me give you an example, uh, but I promise not to tell him. My son Paxton is setting to get a train table for Christmas. He loves trains, and I want to make him a train table. Here's what I want to see happen as a good dad to my son on Christmas morning when he unwraps the gift that I have given him. You know what I want him to do? I want him to freak out with gratitude. I want to, ah, I got a train table. I want him to be really excited that this good gift had just entered his life. And then you know what I want him to do with it? I want him to play with it. A lot. I want him to derive great joy out of it. Right? And when his friends come over, I want, them to, I want him to be able to share with them and say, look it, my dad gave this to me. It's awesome. You want to play with it too? Imagine, my son's two. He's pretty articulate, but he's not this articulate. Imagine if he would say to me though, dad, I know that some of my friends don't have train tables. And I feel bad about that. So I can't receive this gift because it wouldn't be right for me to have a train table when somebody else doesn't. You know what I'd say? Son, ask me to make them a train table too. Enjoy your gift. But dad, dad, there's Christians and there's, they're being persecuted and there's missionaries who don't have enough money. Dad, we need to sell this train table and give the money to the poor or to missions or to something. I can't have this gift. Son, ask me to give to the missionaries Ask me to give to the poor or use your train table, rent space at it, start making some money, give that to the poor. <laughs> but son, I give this to you as a gift. Enjoy it. Glorify me by thanking me for it. Share it. Steward it. Don't destroy it. Don't leave it out in the rain. Steward it well so that it'll last for a long time so you can derive great joy from it, giving me glory and others good. Do you guys see where I'm going with this? So how do you know if you're on track with gratitude? Let me show you this helpful comparison. It's drawn from a book by a guy named Jamie Munson. He writes a book called Money, God, or Gift, in which he compares attitudes of gratitude versus greed. So if your perspective is gratitude, you'll be based out of grace. You'll recognize you're a sinner who deserves death. But 
Jesus stepped into your place, paid the price, and gave you his perfect righteousness. That's grace. But if your attitude is greed, then you find yourself entitled. I am a good person. I have made much of myself, and I deserve good, fine, nice things, and more of them now. In relationship to your money, I believe that's what's next. If you've got gratitude, you recognize that God gives Your money is his, and you can use it to glorify him versus you earn. Your money is yours, and you use it however I please. Me. It's all about me. Have you ever met that person, like, at a party? Brian Regan, the comedian, talks about this. He says, have you ever, um, you meet the person that they just can't wait to top your story? You know? You've been sitting there. I have two kids. I have three I work 40 hours a week. I work 60. Step back. People have this weird me obsession. It's not godly. Possessions, contentment says I have enough. Covetousness says I never have enough. If your job is based out of gratitude, you can recognize that you work heartily for the Lord. You cultivate thanks for provision is what we talked about last week. You can pick up the CD. Greed says work begrudgingly for the man, and you become bitter and jealous against others. Finally, if your if you're, if you're giving is based out of gratitude, it will be generous because God is a generous God, or if it's based out of greed, if you give it all, it will be guilt-based to assuage, um, I'm rich, so I ought to give, or it will be gain-based, I give in order that God, I will give a little so that God will give me back much. Take a few moments, if you will, and look at the chart and figure out which side of the chart you more closely associate with. Uh, Money is good, but the threat of money stealing our affection away from Jesus Christ is very real. Let me say that again. Money is good, But the threat of money stealing our affection away from Jesus Christ is very real. So, if we could, let's pause just for a moment and talk to Jesus. Jesus, for those of us here who are caught in a greedy, covetous, consumeristic mindset, forgive us. That we have bought into the lie of the American dream that says that if you exist, you exist to bless us only. Father, we repent of our self-centeredness and our selfishness, and we ask that you give us instead a spirit of gratitude that would infuse into everything that we do so that we steward the good gift of money you have given us for your glory and others' good, not just for our gain. Lord, I pray that my budget would be a solid reflection of the fact that you are Lord in Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray, amen. So, If that mindset has been hopefully thoroughly laid, we've got to talk about now how it is that you go about spending your money. There's really only three things you can do with money. You can give it, you can save it, and you can spend it. So let's talk about those three things in order. First of all, when we talk about giving, uh, answer the question, uh, when should I give? Uh, We're going to start giving answer uh, first. And there's two reasons for this. We'll show them to you. Uh, We start with giving first because Scripture does. 
Uh, Proverbs 3, 9 says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all of your produce. First fruits was when the farm would take the first ears of corn that would come on and say, this, I will give it to God as a reflection of the fact that all of the harvest that is to come ultimately belongs to Jesus Christ. So we give first. Again, in um, 1 Corinthians 16, it says, on the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. Now, that's a key point that says that your giving is on a sliding scale with your income. So that's why we encourage a percentage-based, not dollar-based giving mentality. The point is, is that Scripture prioritizes giving, therefore we ought to prioritize giving. That's the theological point. The practical point is this. How many of you guys know that if you wait towards the end of the month to give, there's hardly ever anything left? Have you guys noticed that your expenses always expand to meet your income? Right? There's hard, it doesn't matter what tax bracket you're in, there's hardly ever anything left over. So I want to encourage you, the way to offset that is by developing the discipline to say, I will give first. So however it is that you get paid, either biweekly or monthly, or if you're on commission, you can recognize that when you see increase coming down the pipeline, say the first thing that I'm going to do is be able to honor Scripture by giving first. All right. To whom should you give? Uh, your local church, plus fill in the blank. Now, this is where the cynics start throwing tomatoes, because I understand that there's apparent conflict of interest between the local church telling you to give money to the local church. It's no secret that my salary is supported entirely by you guys. So it makes sense for me to stand up here and say, give more. Here's why I tell you to give to the local church, and hopefully you can take me out of it and look to scripture. Uh, let me ask you this question. Ought a Christian to care about what Jesus cares about? Makes sense. I mean, if you're married, does it make sense that you care about what your wife cares about? Yeah, that's just a good way to deal in a relationship. So, um, if we care about what Jesus cares about, the next question becomes, what does Jesus care about? This is a good thought question. What does Jesus care about? Mallory, what did you say? His bride. Oh, which is? His church. His church. Bill Hybels, pastor over at uh, Willow Creek, says the local church is the hope of the world. Think about that statement. What I love about Foursquare is that everywhere you go, Foursquare is a church planting network. You won't find many hospitals, many schools, many orphanages within Foursquare internationally. But you know what you will find? Every place that the Foursquare flag is, you will find a local church. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is the transforming power that brings people from death to life. And the local church is God's ordained vehicle to bring the gospel into the world today. When Jesus looked at Peter, what did he say? In you I will build my what? Church. So Jesus Christ is the senior pastor of this church. Jesus Christ is the chief shepherd of this church. Jesus Christ died for this church. Jesus Christ loves his church. What ought we to love? His church. That's tough because we're all sinners and we stink. I admit that. Doesn't remove the call from us to love. Part of love is giving. It would be foolish for you to say, I love my family. Well, every week you take most of your paycheck and you go and gamble or drink so that nothing is left for the home. 
that doesn't make sense. You've got a values conflict. So if you're going to say that I care about Jesus, then you're gonna care about what Jesus cares about, which is the local church, and then that leads to a spirit of generous giving, right? But many people especially don't prefer to give their money to the local church. They prefer to give it to a particular ministry that's doing a particular good that's got a face on it. So we give to orphan care, or we give to um, the many things that are the felt needs in the world today. So what begins to happen, especially in the local church context, is we begin to um, what we call um, like direct our giving, right? Let me show you. That's fantastic, first of all, because I applaud the fact that we want to maximize our investment for the kingdom of God, and we want to keep our giving focused to where it needs to go. But here's what begins to happen a little bit. This church... The engine that fuels everything that happens to this church is called the general fund. Let me look, it looks like this. It's just a big pot of money that makes everything here happen. It pays salaries, it covers insurance, and makes sure that the mortgage is paid, and the lawns are mowed, and the parking lot is striped, and makes sure that everything that it requires to run an organization of this size, it happens through the general fund. So everything that we do, right? Church under the bridge, Camp Agape, summer camps, places in which the poor are being fed and the sick are being reached and the, and the lost are being found, all of those ministries are supported in large part by the general fund. Same thing with benevolence, right? The church is outlaying lots of money this time of year to help people through the holidays who couldn't otherwise, and that money comes from the general fund. So here's the caution that I want to give you, is that as you begin to pursue, like identifying one of these things, I want to get a scholarship to get a kid to camp. A thousand bucks gets four kids to camp next year. Camp gets people saved, gets people in ministry, it rocks. Good use of a thousand bucks. But what happens is, is if you give there and not to the general fund, then you can just begin to see the organ that pumps blood through everything begins to shrink and shrivel and ultimately die. And when the general fund goes away, everything here that you see also goes away. So when I would encourage you, you oftentimes hear us, so if you ever take a special offering for CBC or ID, you'll say it's above and beyond your normal offering. Why? Because what we're thinking about, what Dave Kelly is especially thinking about, is the fact that if the general fund goes away, everything else that it supports, which is everything this church does, also goes away. So I want to encourage you, give generously, yes, but prioritize that so that the core remains healthy, that everything that the church does and touches can also remain healthy, all right? Uh, next question, how much should you give? Answer, that's between you, your spouse, and Jesus. 10% is a great guideline, but it's just that, it's a guideline. But if we understand a theology of gratitude in which everything has been given to us by God, then it's worthwhile to sit down with your spouse, your bank balance, and Jesus and say, God, help us identify what sum qualifies as generous for us. And then say, God, as increases come, help us to recognize that perhaps you haven't blessed us just to increase our standard of living, but perhaps to increase our standard of giving. Next thing, saving. Should you save? Mm, yes. Saving is not sexy and won't get you any new friends. <laughs> but it's worthwhile. I also recognize the progression here is important. It's not giving, spending, saving, because it's the same thing. If you wait to save till the end of the month, will you save anything at all? No. No, you won't. Um, so save first, okay? Why? Why? Well, because it's scriptural, first of all. Um, 
Proverbs 13, 22, it reflects the godly values of generosity and preparedness. Generosity, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. If your goal in life is to spend your last dime on the day you die, you've misunderstood deeply what it means to be a man of generosity and wisdom. Proverbs 21.20, precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling. What does a fool do? Devours it all. This is the, I made more money, sweet, where can we spend it? Mentality. Careful. Because what happens, and we saw this in 2008 and onward, is that the giving rates in America in 2008 were 2.6%. So if you made 50 grand a year as a family, 2.6% pencils out to be about 125 a month. $125 a month. That was it that wasn't being spent. And so when you lose a job, when you've got that little margin between you and life, it's a new set of tires, it's a trip to the urgent care, and all of a sudden your financial ship begins to capsize because you were not prepared for those expenses. A young man who was much wiser than I at the time, he sat me down before I got married. He said, James, you need to start saving now for expenses you don't even know about. Little did I know I was about to get married, and let me tell you. (laughs) Saving is biblical. It doesn't represent a lack of faith. It represents good stewardship. And I recognize right now, savings rates are essentially zero. But, Having some margin between you and life. The Bible exalts the ant in Proverbs chapter 6. It says, go to the ant, you sluggard. Learn of her ways and be wise. Why? Because she has no ruler, king, or leader, yet she prepares food for herself in summer and gathers at harvest time. Why do you prepare food for yourself in summer? Because winter is coming. And you may never know when exactly it will hit. And you do well to be prepared. Now, poverty theology people leap on that and they save a ton. I want to be cautious with you that sometimes one of the best things you can do for your marriage is grab your spouse and go out and blow a ton of cash if you've got it in savings. I remember when we were dinkers, dual income, no kids, before I was spending all of my money on diapers and formula. My wife and I, we were saving a lot. We were both working. We were basically taking what she was making and dropping it into savings because we knew I was going to go back to school. My wife sacrificed a great deal to be able to put me through college debt-free, and I'm very thankful for that. But along the way, what begins to happen is like, James, we've got more money than we know what to do with, and we're not having any fun. And this is a big deal, right? So I said, I got to deal with this. I took my wife. We went up to Bonneville Hot Springs. We got a room. Would you like to upgrade? Yes. We went there. We looked at the little menu. You can get hot stone massages here. Whoa. And I got one, and I'm not afraid to admit that. And it was amazing. It was 90 minutes of bliss, right? So we got out of that. We got into like the salt pools and the hot tubs and the saunas. And we just, we just pampered ourselves for like a day. We had a nice dinner. We did things like if I'm going to go to a nice place, we're going to like split a $15 entree. We got two entrees. That was a big deal for us, right? <laughs> the next day we go to check out. We've been in this place for, I don't know, 18 hours. They give me a bill, $625. I was stunned. What have I done? <laughs> I just blew so much money. The good news was is that we knew we had it in savings. 
and we just made a fantastic memory, and my wife knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that she was more important to me than meeting the budget. And that's an important lesson that you can give to your spouse sometimes. So, you have my permission. Grab some of your savings, go out and blow it for the glory of God and the good of your marriage. <laughs> Last thing is this, it's spending. Uh, if we've understood that everything we have belongs to God, um, and that we're called to be like Jesus, who's a generous giver, who gives to his church because he loves his church, who saves because he recognizes that life is unpredictable and we want to be prepared, then spending money becomes, obviously, you've got to pay your bills, you've got to meet your obligations, you've got to pay your taxes, you've got to be upright. Um, but I want to give you two, hopefully, guiding principles in this. The first is contentment. The second one is simplicity. Uh, contentment. A Black Friday happens in, I guess, four and a half days. Uh, how many of you guys have bought a TV in the last two years? Okay. How many of you guys were fantastically happy with that TV at the time because it was a fantastic deal, right? Now, you know what will happen when you go into Costco or Walmart or Freddy's on Friday or later, right? Is you will see a TV twice as big for half the price. The same TV that less than two years ago you were ecstatic with and you invited your friends over, come watch the game at my place because I got a big TV. Now all of a sudden you feel that there's other larger TVs out there and that if I don't get that, everybody will abandon my house and my chicken wings and nobody will like me anymore because I do not have the biggest TV on the block. I need to get a new TV. Paul says, I have learned... In every situation, he says, whether to be rich or poor, to be what? Learned how to, learned, learned, learned how to be content. Learned how to be content. Do you know why we don't save and we don't give? It's because if we keep buying TVs every two years, do you know that the average American has credit card debt in excess of $5,500? Just credit card debt. We're not talking mortgages or boats or loans, just credit card debt, 5,500 bucks. So that means if you're debt free, somebody else has 10 grand in debt. That equates out to anywhere between 13 and 15% of your disposable income goes to service that debt. 13 to 15%. If you work 40 hours a week, 160 weeks a month, 22 hours of your work life goes exclusively to pay down debt for stuff that you didn't need in the first place because we fail to learn what it means to be content. So ask yourself, the next time you go to buy something, do I need this to meet some need in my life that I feel that having this possession will somehow make me happy? If so doing, then you are placing your hope and your future joy in that thing, not Jesus, and that's what the Bible calls idolatry. So be very careful. I'm not saying don't have nice things. I'm not saying it's not as bad to upgrade, by no means. But I am saying if you go to those things in order to fill a need in your life that you're not getting from Jesus, then we've got a serious conflict of interest. The second thing is simplicity. How many of you guys have ever moved and then been staggered by the amount of stuff that you have? And then how many of you, after moving, will have half of your stuff still in boxes six or 12 months later because when you realize if it's not on the shelf, you really don't need it? I told the Saturday night service that Americans spend more money on storage units than the entire entertainment industry combined. Music, movies, books, everything. The storage unit is a massive industry. Why? Because we have no idea what to do with all of our stuff. Because more is better. 
and more and more and more. I caution you, be very careful about the stuff you bring into your house. And when it comes time to sit down and figure out whether or not you need that new purchase, ask yourself, will this ultimately bring me more joy? Or will I just have to maintain it, repair it, upkeep it, clean it, dust it, and ultimately this thing that I thought is going to be so cool is actually just a big pain in my neck. I want us to be people that when we go about the daily behavior of spending money, we do so with a degree of intentionality, recognizing that the power that we have to get the money we're about to spend came from Jesus, so we'd be thankful, right? And then we steward it well so that the money we have can turn into more money, so that we can generously give, so that the work of Christ in the world can move forward. Please, it's not about you. Don't spend money as though it is. Jesus, we need you. This is tough. Help us, Lord, uh, to break the addiction of consumerism in our lives. God, help us to be able to rejoice greatly about the good things that you have given us, but be very cautious about if those things have stolen our heart. So, Lord, we invite your presence here, first, to convict us of sin, second, to encourage us to good work and godliness, and thirdly, Lord, to infuse in us a spirit of generosity that goes beyond just a little bit, but into a lot, because you gave a lot, and we want to be like you. So, Father, free us from the false perceptions of other people and of our culture, to be able to focus on we serve you, we look for your approval, your pleasure, and your grace in our lives today. We trust that you will equip us to do this. We trust that you will give us the necessary tools and resources, education and training that are required in order to be good stewards of your money in this world today. And until the time that we get to go and be with you, Father, help our hearts not to be set on the things of this world. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. You can contact the church office Tuesday through Thursday from 9 to 5 and Fridays from 9 to 3 at 503-266-4444. Please visit us on the web anytime at canbefoursquare.com. Pastor Ron and others on New Life staff, along with occasional guest speakers, trust that the Holy Spirit will use the message to teach you, encourage you, and give you hope.